1: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Phoebus was sitting at this desk. This is the chief's office in the jail. He was making phone calls. When he allegedly got up, went out this door, which leads into a small hallway, and he was heading for the outside, wanted to go out this door here, which is locked. Before he could get out, he had to come over here, push this button which then leads to an inner corridor and then the door to the outside. This is where he was kept until the other two federal prisoners came in. So Mike Thevis walked out this door to freedom to the sheriff's parking lot. His girlfriend, Pat McLean, now charged with aiding and abetting in his escape, Thiebus, where is he? Some are speculating he may be in Colombia or Costa Rica, countries which before have harbored United States criminals. Don McClellan, Action News, New Albany, Indiana.
3: He has a woman friend who'd been his secretary, greases the palms of some of the guards, gives them tip, treat him well. That's their story. Just, you know, treat him well, give him $50. So he's in this local jail. They let him use the phone for four hours at a time. And he said, they'll come back after four hours, and we'll bring you back to your cell. They'd let him wander out to say goodbye to his lawyer one time. He has this four-hour gap where they can let him use the office. Walks out at the start of it figures. That's his story, that he has a four-hour leap ahead before the authorities start after him.
4: From what he told me, it was clearly planned. It it was not an accident. He fully planned to get out of that place. It was totally set up, but... Once he got out, I think he regretted it immediately because I think he thought he could have beat the rap had he stayed in prison. He had help escaping. He had to grease those guards up there with someone giving him the money, right? So it's not like he had it in his, in his front pocket in a penitentiary. He was basically up there for just one week for the trial from another penitentiary, and that was a holding tank place, and it was arranged for him to make a break during that week. He knew before he was going, when he was going, and they knew how long he was going to be there. He had to have money when he got out.
3: He walks out a prison door that supposedly is propped open with a soda can. Now, when we had spoken with him, ironically, he had said that he had seen federal reports that called him an escape risk because he knew this looming rico case and murder case was coming against him pretty clearly he had a lot of cash stashed away as you would do in such a business so supposedly he had been branded that and the story was this little local prison had not been told that he was such an escape so they viewed him as just a wealthy and he, he's by the way a very bright guy
4: the man had monster balls. He just thought he could get away and go hide, and, and it wasn't going to be a big deal. He used to say he didn't know if he should move out west and live on a ranch in Montana or go hide amongst the millions of people in New York City.
1: Thevis had escaped the tiny prison and was on the run. The FBI put out warnings to the Bureau when Thevis escaped. Mike Thevis was on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. Thieves had escaped out the back door of the new Albany, Indiana prison without a trace. Pat McClain, the woman he was going to marry, had plans to join Thieves when he escaped. But just days before, she got cold feet and stayed in Atlanta.
4: He was very much in love with her and, you know, he wanted to be with her. And he was facing uh, a new indictment that he had gotten word that was coming out, I think, in June of that year. and. Um, He had just finalized the divorce with my mom and uh, he had obviously sold the companies and he had set up trusts for children and and alimony trusts and things of that nature. He was tying up loose ends because he wanted to be with Pat. He saw an opportunity to go. And um, it's my contention and my belief that the main reason he escaped the penitentiary was not because he couldn't fight the charges or he was worried about it. It's because he was in love with a woman he wanted to be with, period. Because, you know, his max-out date, from when the day he went in in December of 74, his max-out date was November 30th of 79. So he caused himself so many damn problems by escaping that day. And it was the worst mistake he ever made, clearly. Um, but there was a huge indictment coming down regardless of whether he escaped or not. I think he saw no light at the end of the tunnel, even if he did beat, beat all the charges, which is highly unlikely even then for him. Um But it was the old, uh, I'm in love, I gotta go.
1: Though Pat had been to see Thieves on multiple occasions, she had not been at the jail that day, nor at the nearby motel where they had often met. Pat had stayed back in Atlanta, but why?
4: She was out of there. She couldn't take the heat. You're talking about the press all swarming all over you and the FBI and the government really all up in your business and, and Threatened to put you in jail, and she hired Ed Garland to, to defend her, and that was it. She had intended to run away with him when he escaped, and that fell apart within 48 hours. She was picked up by the feds in Atlanta uh, for aiding and abetting in his escape.
1: Pat McLean wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. Authorities found her just two days after the breakout, back in Atlanta.
2: Why were you crying in the courtroom? At, at this time...
5: She's not going to answer any questions. Will she talk to us about the tears? She may talk a little later about that. This is the first time she's been free in over 48 hours. It's been a very traumatic day. She's in my custody, and I'm going to take her and we go into my office. She'll be more relaxed later and may at that time consent to an interview. But at this time, she's just going to collect her wits and uh, get ready to
1: take the next step in our appeal to the Fifth Circuit. Ed Garland was there that day to represent Pat. Garland even took Pat into his own custody and they were joined by a U.S. Marshal. She wanted to stop running and she wanted a normal life.
6: And suddenly
1: Mike Thevis was on the run, alone, but where was he going? Had he left the country? And what about his kids? Would he ever see them again?
4: He spent a great deal of his time on escape in Atlanta, in North Carolina, in the Southeast. I think that was incredibly cocky and confident. and He liked the fight. You know, uh, Any of us normal folks would be anxious and scared to death. And it just did not affect him like that.
1: The manhunt for Thevis went nationwide. Everyone was on the lookout for Thevis. Even Paul Lieberman and Jim Stewart tried to track him down. We
3: actually tried to locate Thevis. We sort of assumed, again, that part of the philosophy of dealing with these things is you have patience and you wait and people will come to you. People want to talk, and we knew we had already spoken to us, and we figured part of this is a, a public relations battle. You know, he wants to denounce his henchmen and the government trying to get him. We wouldn't have been surprised if pick up the phone and he called us. So we start also trying to track him. And one of the things we did, we knew he would want to know every detail of what's happening. So we speculated back then, for people today may not believe this, there was no computer, internet, to look up stuff instantly that was being published. You actually had to get a newspaper in your hands. The way you got it, if you didn't live on a circulation route, you had it mailed to you. And there were two newspapers in Atlanta that were owned by the same company, Morning Newspaper, The Constitution, Afternoon, The Journal. We figured if Thevis was out of state, which he certainly was much of the time, he would want copies mailed to him. So we actually cross-referenced the mail subscriptions, see how many people were getting both newspapers, and could it be Mike Thievus? We didn't find them that way.
1: Back at the FBI, Paul King worked to make sure the message was broadcast across the country and even extended overseas.
6: I just started contacting my sources, both here in the United States and overseas, and we just put the word out. I can't tell you exactly how he got it out, but basically not to help him. And once that got out there, you were in a heap of trouble if you did. Then his, uh, what he thought were his true friends, kind of abandoned him.
1: Thevis had escaped in late April, and in June, he still hadn't been caught. Just like he had predicted, the government came down hard with a 14-count, 28-page indictment that month. The charges included the murder of Hannah and Mays. If Thevis was overseas, these charges would make it easier to bring him back to the states for trial. There was no going back now. two
5: corporations are charged as part of an enterprise which operated a nationwide pornography business that attempted to eliminate competition through various unlawful means, including murder, arson, and extortion.
1: Paul King and his team had collected over 300 pages of damaging interviews with Roger Dean Underhill, capturing the conversations they had had over many years.
6: And I can't tell you the situation, but I didn't save his life, Roger's, but by any means, but... We convinced him to be on our side and then we could, we relocated him he was grateful of that he was, it was sort of a man and you would suggest what he did and how you know, he acted his family committed an awful lot too
1: King and his team had collected a mountain of evidence
6: once uh, we turned underhill and I'd, it, you know, things changed a lot because he was able to fill in a lot of blanks for us.
1: Roger Dean Underhill was going to be the star witness at Mike Thevis' RICO trial. But first, they had to catch Thevis. Anna Jeanette Evans was a real estate agent in Atlanta. She had known Mike for over 20 years when Mike and Joanne went to her dance studio.
4: Well, Jeanette and my uh, folks, uh, they met in 1962 at a dance studio. Uh, Jeanette was a dance instructor. I think she was in her mid, maybe early 20s. And um, her and my dad uh, basically fell in love with each other. And they had a relationship, friendship She was at least a little closer
1: in age to Mike than Pat was. Jeanette was 40, and Mike was 46. She had never been married before, and she had no children. Jeanette had come to visit him the last few years, while he was in the Springfield, Missouri facility. Mike had just finalized his divorce with Joanne. He wanted to be with Pat, but Pat had not joined him when he escaped. Two weeks after his escape, and with Pat McLean no longer on the run with him, Mike and Jeanette reunited. They spent time together on her mother's farm north of Atlanta and also traveled to various parts of the country, still not recognized by anyone. Things got cozy very quickly. Mike and Jeanette even started looking for a house together. Maybe they would get married.
4: Well, uh, Jeanette didn't even meet up with him until weeks after his escape. And it was an accidental meetup because he wanted to be with Pat. That's why he escaped, as I said earlier. His, his. in my opinion, he left to be with Pat. She couldn't take the heat and she stayed in Atlanta and lawyered up and uh, he was on the road, he was alone, didn't want to be alone so he, he called Jeanette to meet him. But he felt that she was being watched so she would meet him here, meet him there, come back to Atlanta, work, go meet him until they finally decided that they were gonna to try to make a life together, get married, and go and enjoy his freedom.
1: Mike Thevis and Jeanette Evans were now together, and they kept moving. Thevis's face was on Most Wanted posters all over the country, and he had been so well-known in the media for years. Mike and Jeanette drove to Boston in early fall, 1978. Thevis went under the name Jonathan Evans, and the two of them, now going as a married couple, met dermatologist Dr. Michael Greenwald. His specialty was hair transplants. Thevis was looking to get a hair transplant at the office. He was going to change his appearance and go into hiding with Jeanette. Fee was put down the full $1,400 payment for the procedure, scheduled for October 26th. But one week before, on October 19th, Jeanette called the office to cancel due to unfinished business in Texas. Mike and Jeanette did not return. Even though Thieves was still on the run, Underhill couldn't stay away from Atlanta. He was supposed to go into witness protection, but he stayed nearby, often within 100 miles of the city. And Roger didn't stop talking with Lieberman and Stewart.
3: So, we meet with him, we talk more on the phone. I actually go to and this now gives me chills someone in my neighborhood who was a real estate guy and say will you meet with this fellow who owns land on the chattahoochee river and i still remember 41 years later the name i'm not going to say it i remember the man's wife who had a little bit of a public profile in atlanta and he said yeah i could do that So we're going through the due diligence of setting up another meeting and getting our real estate friends to meet with him. And I have an athletic competition. I'm playing volleyball on an adult league team for the Atlanta City Championship. Midway through the match, someone comes down on the back of my leg. Down I go, totally severed Achilles tendon. Two sides of it are the end of two mops, the doctor says. I have to be rushed the next day into surgery back then
1: they put metal up your leg full cast all the way up your thigh I'm out of action Lieberman and Stewart had planned to meet with Underhill again in person over a beer one night but now Paul was out of action with his injury and their meeting didn't happen there was a flurry of daily phone calls as Underhill revealed more about the years he spent with Thevis with Lieberman stuck at home Stewart planned another meeting with Underhill on Thursday October 19th my writing partner Jim Stewart
3: has another meeting with with Underhill at a luncheonette they talk some more we get more material and we still tell him we can have this person meet with him if he wants
1: and it's a little bit up in limbo Stewart was getting married in just two days and he could tell that Underhill was nervous my partner this is
3: the real world it's amazing how these things go he's getting married and I will say to a woman that he's now still married to 41 years later, invites Underhill to come to the ceremony, but he says, we're going to have to delay what more we do, come to the reception. He doesn't come at the reception. I'm carried there on crutches with my huge cast. I have to go in the back of someone's station wagon, literally out, and they lower the seats. Jim is going off on his honeymoon trip. I'm back, and my townhouse is all reconfigured, so I'm on one level.
1: But Honor Hill didn't come to Jim Stewart's wedding reception that night. Instead, he went to an Atlanta motel with his fiance, Irene. The two talked about entering witness protection. Roger was going to be videotaped for the first time to preserve his testimony, but he wanted to sell the Riverside Drive property first. They spent the next two days cleaning up the property.
0: We moved to Atlanta in September of 78 and built a house on Riverside Drive. It was Part of the North Harbour community, even though it was not in North Harbour. We didn't move in until October, I guess.
1: This is Pearl Struminger. Pearl and her husband Henry had just moved to Atlanta in the fall of 1978. They built a new house close to the Chattahoochee River.
0: At that time, Riverside Drive was quite quiet. It was only a two-lane road. The bridge going across Johnson Ferry from our county into Marietta The bridge across Johnson Ferry Road was, you know, two lanes. It was a nothing bridge. We used to ride our horses across, well, later, after we were a little bit developed and we we got horses in our backyard. And we used to ride our horses across the bridge to the polo fields, which were on the other side. So that whole area was totally undeveloped.
1: They loved the peace and quiet of it all. But one night, Henry noticed something strange. He peered out the window, wondering what was going on.
0: Well, he was in the back getting ready for bed. Across the street from where we lived, there was just undeveloped land. And then at the other side of that property was the Chattahoochee River. So there was nothing in there at all. He was in the bathroom. He didn't look outside. His gaze was drawn to outside because he saw headlights in that driveway. He saw a car drive into it, turn around, come out, go in, come out. And so he thought it was peculiar. Somebody was turning around, maybe somebody was lost. But we very rarely saw any activity over there at all. I remember the gate had been ripped down, but I do not remember if he heard a crash or not. I remember him mentioning to me that somebody across the street, maybe they're stuck and whatever, but we just went to bed. It was early morning. I was pregnant and my husband had already left for work, or maybe he was out of town. I don't remember exactly. And my daughter, Belinda, who was four. I was getting her ready for preschool. She went to Holy Innocent and we were in my bathroom and that has a window facing the street and I was combing her hair. I remember it extremely clearly. So we were very new to the area, didn't know many people at all. And I was getting ready for a carpool to pick her up. And I heard pop, 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 which almost sounded to me like a car tire blowing although I didn't realize why it went three times and so I looked out the window and our house was about 200 feet back from the road and up on the top of the hill and I could see a very dark car black or very very dark blue and and a big car driving by our property very slowly and I thought nothing of it going very, very slowly, not the regular speed of somebody going up Johnson Ferry Road. The carpool came, I put Belinda in the car, went back into the house, and then a little bit later, there was a doorbell ringing and pounding on the door, and I answered the door, and there was a very panicked woman outside. I have to use your phone, please let me use your phone. My boyfriend's been shot across the street, and and hysterical, and I thought, I am not letting this crazy person into my house. So I told her that if she waited right there, I would call the police, which I closed the door, and I did. 911, emergency. At first, I thought she was maybe a little bit weird, and I just told her to stay outside, and I closed the door and locked it, because I did not know who this woman was. She was ranting and raving, and I called the police. I mean, that was the only thing I knew to do. I did not panic. I didn't think there was a reason to panic. It was not a long time before the police arrived. For as much as I wanted to open the door to comfort this woman, I would not, and I did not. I was afraid to let anybody into my house. Basically, just waited. I didn't call anybody, I didn't do anything. I was just in the moment. And then the next thing I knew, the police were there, and the FBI was there, and there was just all kinds of nonsense
1: going on. Just six days after the last in-person conversation with Underhill, and just four days after Stewart's wedding, Lieberman received a phone call.
3: And a call comes from someone at the Atlanta Constitution, We've just heard over police radio and from authorities that there's been a shooting along the Chattahoochee River and that one possible victim is a figure in the Thieves case. We don't know who it is. And I said on the phone, You don't have to tell me who it is. I know who it is. It's Roger Dean Underhill. And it's one of these times where you sink and you go flush. I say, Get someone here, bring me in. We reach jim stewart he's going to come into we're going to start telling the story of roger dean underhill and of course the thought also comes to mind could that have been us meeting with him and the word is that it's roger dean underhill and someone else who was he was showing his land to a total innocent victim who was shotgunned down along the chattahoochee
5: We think that he's probably going to be dead. We're going to make sure right now. I'm going to make a phone call to make sure. What were the circumstances of the shooting? Don't know yet. Well, that's
2: been in the news lately. We would heard they were connected with the Mike Davis organization. Can you confirm that? Yes. In what way are they connected?
5: Well, right now, I don't know. I'm going to have a talk to federal strike force. These people were definitely connected. At least one of them were. And I don't want to get into that too much right now. You
2: think there's a third person involved here? Or was it just
5: between these two people? It definitely a third person. Or the, or, the, or the wife of one of the people who was The girlfriend. girlfriend. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Were they both shot up there? Hey, pardon, have I, no, I absolutely.
5: absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I personally feel that way. Famous yeah. connection? Thieves connection. Thieves connection.
6: Can you elaborate yes. on
5: that Not right yeah. now. Uh, the thrust of what we're doing right now is to, in great detail, just go hour by hour, minute by minute, and try to determine when, how, and where Underhill and Mr. Galanti got together this morning, what the reasons for their meeting were, and so forth. And that's, that's really uh, the most, uh, I would say, most significant and most intensive effort uh, that we're expending at this time.
1: Roger Dean Underhill was dead. And so was Isaac Galanti, an innocent bystander, whom Underhill had been showing the property to at the time. Irene Williams, Underhill's fiance, had come upon the body of Roger on the property and ran to Pearl's house, begging for help. Though Pearl didn't understand what was happening at the time, the FBI shared the news with her, and her house was ground zero for the team.
0: When the FBI came, they told me exactly what was going on and who was who and described all the players. You have to remember that it was before the days of cell phones and all the rest of it. And so they used my house. They just come and near my house. They would just come and walk in and out as they please and use my phone and sat at my kitchen table and discussed everything. And I made coffee and yeah. It just—it was like out of a movie, but it wasn't, and it just happened. Our house became, I think, their headquarters. They were there all the time, and uh, looking into whatever there was to look into. And then, of course, later I realized more. I was told, but at that particular moment, of course, I had no
2: idea. The two men came in Galati's car yesterday morning. You can see where the murderers may have climbed up this embankment and hidden behind one of those trees with a shotgun and probably another weapon. When Underhill and Galanti got about here, the murderers fire. The first shot struck Galanti. the second Underhill. Underhill fell. Galanti kind of stumbled forward. The murderers fired, hitting him again. Underhill always carried a gun with him. It was found clutched in his hand like this, but he hadn't been able to get off a single shot. How did the murderers know to be hiding up here, up this embankment behind one of these trees at this particular time? How did they know that Underhill would be coming up this roadway? Well, maybe, maybe it was just a long stakeout for them. This place on Riverside Drive will likely become a curiosity spot like many other infamous murder scenes before it. But unlike it happens in the fictional murder stories, the curious are not likely to include the murderers returning to the scene of their crime.
1: Weeks later, back at Lionsgate, police surrounded the house, looking for Thebus and any clues as to his whereabouts. If he was back in Atlanta, maybe he had gone back to the house. A police helicopter
2: hovering over the old Mike Thebus mansion today on Powers Ferry Road. I'm Don McClellan, I'll tell you why. After the Raiders went in, a lone Fulton County police car pulled in and blocked the driveway so no one could get in and no one could get out. Did you find him? No, he wasn't there, but I can't
5: go into all the details of what we were looking for.
2: Why did it take so long to search the mansion?
5: You were up there for more than four hours. Yeah, it's a pretty big place to search. And then, you know, it could have been
2: about six more hours. And So the police are being closed mouthed about what they may have found in today's
1: raids. Two days after Underhill's funeral, Paul Lieberman received another phone call.
3: So Underhill gets murdered. The phone rings. Who was it? It's the other fellow that he'd brought in who had worked with Thevis, but one step down the, the pole, who would help burn the warehouse in Louisville. He now wants to get a message to Thevis saying, I don't want to become another Underhill. I'm not going to cause you any trouble. I'm not going to
1: tattle on you. Clifford Wilson, the man who had ridden with Underhill to Nat Balin's warehouse all the way back in 1970, was on the other line. And he was afraid for his life. Now that Underhill was dead. There's only three episodes left in the season. Chapter 8, RBJ Evans, is up next. You won't want to miss it. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hoke, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself and Jasmine Cross with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eilert. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. Part-time lover, full-time fool, performed by Lolita Holloway, written by Floyd Smith. Originally released in 1973 by Aware. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music, licensed from GIM Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit GangsterHouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review have questions, email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening.